Hello, and welcome to our second episode of a Friendly Chat podcast with me, Naomi Hazenberg, and my fellow senior associate, uh, co-host, colleague, and friend aficionado, Luke Maunder. Thank you very much, Naomi. Good to be back. It's been a while. We're going to talk today about the thrilling topic of disclosure and confidentiality into which we shall delve as it is a very important point for pretty much everyone operating in the friend space. Wouldn't you agree? I would. It's one of those things that clients are always concerned about and interested to know about. And it's probably one of the things that differs most from other jurisdictions. Absolutely. And the UK disclosure rules are quite helpful in that regard because they promote open and natural justice. They promote actually having disclosure, which is a step above other jurisdictions, but also at the same time seek to constrain it and make it proportionate and only have disclosure of what really is going to matter in the overarching dispute. So it's a tricky balance to get right, but the English court seems to be doing a pretty good job of it so far in Fran disputes uh, to date. Indeed. And it's it's one of those areas where the UK court's experience in patent actions and, and other commercial actions where they've really had to manage and, and contain the disclosure of confidential information really uh, comes to the fore. And they've got, you know, there are lots of highly developed confidentiality regimes based on a lot of case law where, you know, the UK court are, are, are well versed in, in managing these issues. And also the UK legal advisors, their barristers were all well used to dealing with this type of confidential information. And I think we need to probably get the acronym alarm out for all of this, don't we? Because we've got LEO, EEO, CBP, HC, just C, uh, and a few other designations beside. Uh, but I think, unless you wanted to, unless you disagree, we can probably just say there's the only the lawyers can see it here, the external lawyers and external experts can see it here, and the some people at the client can see it here. And then right down the bottom, I suppose, you've got the sweep up of just don't yell it from the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. (laughs) That seems like a very sensible approach to doing it. And, you know, uh, some more acronyms to add to the telecoms disputes. You know, why not add some extras amongst the HSDPAs and the USBCs and all that stuff? We add some extra acronyms for us all to deal with. Um, Shall we start with... What kind of things usually get disclosed in FRAND actions, these FRAND SEP actions, and also, you know, the court's approach in managing that disclosure? So it's worth saying that usually the FRAND uh, determination in the UK is based on looking at comparable licences and really examining the terms of those licences and also the negotiation materials that surround the conclusions of each of those uh, licences. And inherently, they are incredibly sensitive, confidential uh, material with, with, you know, not just for the parties, but also for third parties, the other parties to the licenses, all of whom are concerned to keep this material highly confidential and under wraps. Absolutely, yes. And I think you've got that tension, though, don't you, with the inevitable call from an implementer to say, I'd like to see your friend licenses because I want to assure myself that I'm not being discriminated against. And if we're going to end up in court, a comparable license is somewhat invariably going to be one of the methods of valuation that is going to be deployed. And how can we do a comparables license analysis unless we've seen the comparable licenses? So they are invariably going to be the central piece of friend disclosure, the licenses themselves. 
definitely to the portfolio in issue. Um, obviously, there have been some arguments about how licenses to other portfolios could be of relevance. I, I don't think we need to get into the, the depths of whether that's right or wrong or only okay in some cases here. But I mean, we can just talk about the fact that friend licenses need to be disclosed. And then you have around that, possibly less commonly, negotiation materials, don't you, where you may have concerns about why the license was entered into, whether it is a true comparable. And I think we saw that a bit in Unwired with the quotes on quotes fire sale license that was agreed. Indeed. And also elements surrounding some of the Optus Apple disclosure with their negotiation summaries and the, the, their internal communications. Uh, and, you know, cases as far back as I can think of doing them 10, 15 years ago, there were, you know, sensitive confidential emails uh, between, um, you know, licensors and, and potential licensees talking about the, the, the portfolio, the strength of the portfolio. All of those were relevant to the FRAND uh, dispute at the time. So, you know, that kind of material, which understandably wants to be kept confidential. Yes, uh, that Optus Apple case is interesting, isn't it? Because you had the the actual license, the collated negotiation documents, if I remember, where there'd been some effort into recording specifically relevant things and then the suggestion that perhaps you should just do a complete download of everybody's inbox, which uh, used to be the old standard disclosure way, but which we all agree is a, a terrible way to waste costs. A horrible nightmare for lawyers. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Everyone runs the opposite direction when there's a call for help with a disclosure review situation. <laughs> uh, and of course, we sort of want to trend away from the, well, let's just call it the US discovery situation, shall we? Yeah. And it's probably worth talking about when we talk about the general approach to disclosure. It's probably worth touching on you know, the principles laid down by the Court of Appeal in OnePlus and Mitsubishi, having reviewed, you know, a long history of case law about uh, this type of dispute and the confidentiality regimes that have been put in place in this type of dispute. And, and, you know, there's a really helpful summary in that decision of, you know, a number of points, which are the kind of overarching uh, guiding principles without the court calling them guidance about this type of disclosure. Um and, and, you know, the first amongst those is balancing the interest, like you said, of the receiving party, knowing the case against it, having access to the documents that are relevant. And in this case, that's likely to be the comparable licenses, but also the interest of the disclosing party and any interested third parties in, in preserving their confidential commercial technical information. So, you know, that is always at the forefront uh, of the court's mind, I think. So, is it worth us touching on some of the high-level principles from that case before we look at the cases that have applied it? Yes, absolutely. And um, it's always good to introduce that case because we get to use a few more acronyms, uh, in particular, highly confidential material tier and an attorney's eyes only tier for when legal eyes only just won't do the job, I suppose. Um, but what happened there was the High Court had dismissed an application by Oppo to add some individuals in-house at Oppo itself who basically were involved in fan licensing negotiations to the HCM club. So basically they wanted the people responsible for fan licensing negotiations to see all the licenses. And Xiaomi at the same time had applied to redesignate all of the LEO, AEO, whatever we want to call it, documents to HCM, which was a slightly lower tier of confidentiality, but still one that gained access to quite a lot of detailed friend information. 
So the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal and, as you say, made it really clear that the documents in question, including FRAND licences, contained loads of highly valuable confidential information belonging to third parties. And, of course, you know, it had in mind where we were in the proceedings, just how much was being requested. You know, it's a large number of documents. Not all of them are going to be particularly relevant. In fact, most of them will be irrelevant or of less relevance. So those sorts of factors come into whether it's appropriate to limit access. But the court did go on to actually redesignate a few documents, didn't it? So it went and downgraded one or two AEO documents to highly confidential material. But there needed to be undertakings in place. And I think this is where we see start to see the regime that has emerged. And perhaps we can go through some of the case law of ensuring you balance the right to access to relevant, important documents to a client who's got to litigate with the need to keep this material confidential and not to give that client access to information that they could then exploit unfairly, but obviously not expressly, but it's hard to forget you know stuff. I think that's right, isn't it? The court is always highly aware of the risk of you know inadvertent use of the material that's been disclosed. And, and like you say, the, the regime that's been put in place to either keep it away from those in-house lawyers and, and people at, at clients who are involved in licence negotiations. And also, if disclosure, well, probably when disclosure of relevant documents is given to in-house lawyers, a solid set of undertakings that really controls that, that disclosure and what those people are allowed to do and, and whether or not they're allowed to be involved in ongoing licences. And I think one of the key things that comes out of the Mitsubishi Court of Appeal decision is that they're kind of really against it being EEO, LEO on a permanent basis. Um, you know, I think they said it was exceptionally rare if it can happen at all, you know, that you could have a whole case proceed on, you know, key relevant documents being legalised only. But, you know, you keep managing that throughout the the case. And, and it, you know, if it is initially an LEO, EEO tier of confidentiality, continually looking at and reviewing whether it remains necessary to have that kind of restriction in place. And a lot of the subsequent cases have approached it in that way, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's amazing how quickly from experience LEO documents tend to get downgraded to at least EEO when one realises one can't write an expert report with any of them if they're LEO. But uh, yes, yeah, so I suppose the, f- the first real sort of case just worth briefly touching on is IP Bridge and Huawei. And that's where we sort of see the start, isn't it, of this nascent idea that, yes, the client needs to see some, some documents if they're particularly relevant, but I am going to, the court is going to put in place some restrictions on those people. And the sort of restrictions that we see coming in that are then echoed later are only to only a limited number of people, in this case two, um, those people can't be Im- involved actively in FRAN licensing negotiations. And indeed, I think the judge required them to give an undertaking that they wouldn't participate in that sort of negotiation for five years. I mean, there is a slight wrinkle on that case in that there was a particularly sensitive license where there were also some additional safeguards. Um, I think they had to have access only in a read-only environment under supervision, which rather brought to mind images of lawyers standing guard over the side of a computer. But that was a sort of separate issue. I think it's really about this undertaking, isn't it? And this non-involvement in friend licensing negotiations. 
And I think that undertaking highlights the court's awareness of the risk of inadvertent disclosure. Once that kind of information is in the head of a person involved in licensing negotiations, whether or not they mean to use that information going forward into future license license negotiations, I think once it's there, it becomes very difficult to be able to say with certainty, I'm not thinking about that at the time when I'm negotiating a license with that party, a party who's negotiated with that party. So, you know, the court is highly aware of that, like you say. And, and uh, you know, I think that's common through through other cases as well, the interdigital Lenovo case. I think it was two people that were allowed to have access to to some of the licensing, and they also had to undertake not to be involved in licensing negotiations. Again, I think that was a five-year year bar. And I think in, in, the, in many of those cases, the people put forward to being put into the case, you've got, you know... A, a set of tiers of people, people who are those heavily involved in licensing, which are often the people giving the lawyers day-to-day instructions on some of the really intricate economic and, and friend elements of the case, and also more general commercial lawyers within that team or within that organisation that have an awareness of the issues in the case but aren't actively involved in the fan license negotiations on a day-to-day basis. Yes, I think that's right. And, and that's also where you start to see as well in that case is that that other tension isn't it of the court's desire though to have a public judgment so while the the court is actively seeking to preserve confidentiality it does need to be borne in mind in the back of your head that the court also wants to have as public a judgment as possible so it, it will redact parts of a judgment where there are commercial reasons to do it but I think in that case the court allowed some anonymized weighted average average numbers which you obviously can't tie back to any particular entity to be made public just to assist in enabling larger parts of its judgment, its likely judgment to be to be made public. Um, but then I think, so that's a sort of fairly consistent regime, isn't it? But then we have a few slightly sideways uh, cases that look at things slightly differently. So we had Optus and Apple, where Apple sought to disclose its own, sought permission to disclose its own license, which had confidentiality um, provisions in it. And somewhat amusingly, the other side said, well, we don't want to see that license. So why would we want you to disclose it to us? And we don't want to inspect it. So that's a sort of slightly different look at it, isn't it? It it is. And I think that plays into the court's um, keenness to manage the process and keep it proportional and also not introduce unnecessary information that, you know, is both confidential to one party who wants to disclose it, but also to the third party who was opposing that disclosure, the, the other party to that license. And like you said, it, it wasn't a license to the portfolio within the case. So, it, you know, whilst it might have been relevant to see the aspects that are often important to that license see it wasn't relevant to the value of the portfolio per se. So, you know, the court really managing that. Exactly. And and Apple, from what I understood of the judgment, Apple didn't really come with an alternative story to tell, did it, as to why that, why that document was of particular relevance such that it needed to be introduced at a fairly late stage against confidentiality obligations that had been entered into during the pendency of the litigation. So Apple supposedly knowing, I think the court was concerned that Apple entered those obligations knowing about this litigation, so put more emphasis on them than it perhaps otherwise would have. And then you've got IP Bridge and Huawei, another case in IP Bridge and Huawei, which is quite informative for how we look at the early stage. You know, like we said before, earlier on, the court is more 
likely to allow you to to keep things pretty confidential and away from individuals in-house. And in that case, there was a sort of concern about how many and which licenses should be disclosed. Yeah, I think I think that's right, isn't it? The, the court is it, it willing to accept licenses being disclosed on an EEO basis whilst the case is being fully pleaded and whilst the licenses that are actually going to become the key comparables whilst you might have 20 or 30 licenses the high likelihood is you're going to the case will focus in on a much smaller number of those as the trial progresses as the case progresses towards trial and the court was willing to allow them to be seen on an EEO basis and in due course across the case address uh, those being made available to clients as they needed to see to see them as the case you know, focused in on certain licenses. So, so like you say, once again, a case where that staged approach was the one that the court favoured. Absolutely. Um, and then I think there's probably just one more case to, to cover up. I can see the slight terror in your eyes that I didn't put it on the list beforehand. Um, but that's that the, the English court does also have pre-action disclosure capabilities. So the ability to grant disclosure before an action has been started. And we have seen that in at least one case be used to obtain copies of friend licenses early on in the proceedings. So that's an interesting and sort of nascent area that will be interesting to see developed. There's no judgment on that per se, but that's a sort of another aspect to think about is the sort of procedural tools coming back to the idea of trying to promote early settlement of these disputes, um, albeit every one of those turns very much on its facts. So we need to be, you know, there, there needs to be the right case for it to be used. I think, like you say, there's a really key tie for the court between a case being properly pleaded and the case and, and, and the disclosure being, you know, selected as to what is what is relevant for the case going forward. Like, uh, you know, in an, in an in initial disclosure phase, when you please your fan case up front, if you are going to identify a key comparable at that stage, you have to accept that once you've identified it in your pleadings, it is disclosable. Well, we we had that interesting case, didn't we, where um, there was disclosure on the basis that a party was asserting a 100% essentiality rate on the basis they'd been through an essentiality assessment and the court was interested in what disclosure would be needed for that. So it's not just friend licences. There are other things people need to be aware of. You do need to give disclosure on all aspects of your case. But yes, it's all back to proportionality, promotion of settlement, trying to sort things out and deliver justice to the parties. Indeed. I think that probably wraps up our chat on confidentiality and disclosure in UK cases. And uh, we'll be back for some more episodes uh, soon. Uh, and also keep an eye on the Bristow's social media channels for, for upcoming events. Not to mention the Bristow's friend tracker, which will cover off any new judgments that happen to come out in brief. or uh, Of which there might be a few exciting ones coming uh, soon. Indeed, Interdigital and Novo and Optus and Apple on the horizon. We'll do webinars on both of them, but I dare say if you don't want to have a whole hour's worth of webinar on it, you and I might sit down for another friendly chat for each of those. Try and stop us. 